0: chapter 21 and 22 when the seven days were almost completed the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid his laid hands on him crying out men of Israel help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place moreover he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed, crying out, "'Away with him!' As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "'May I say something to you?' And he said, "'Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness?' Paul replied, "'I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city.'" I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. told him first
1: service, I could listen to Tom read the Bible for a long time. I like the way he does it. Uh, if you make him a good enough deal, he might come to your house and just read to you um, it 's been a while since i 've been up here, so if you don 't know who I am, my name is Ryan Vincent. I work in our adult ministry here at Sunnybrook Christian Church, and i wasn 't supposed to be up here this morning. Um, Jim and Andrea are on their way back from Poland, and because of delays and other such things, um, got the call late last night, hey, flight's been canceled, not going to be there. So we knew that that was possible, so I was mostly ready-ish. Um, in fairness, last I was supposed to preach last week, and because of some other things that came up, Paul took that one from me, and in retrospect, I'm so glad that he did. I like what he did with that message much more than I was, uh, what I was going to do with it. So... We have this here. Um, and, and as I've been thinking through this week, uh, we spent the better part of a year in the book of Acts. A story of kind of this burgeoning church and lots of things going on. And it just gives you cause to stop and recognize, wow, things things are amazing in the church. Starts off with just a handful of people who, uh, for the life of me, have no real business setting the world ablaze, and yet that's what their work does, obviously animated by the Holy Spirit. But the church is something to see, especially the global church. Maybe that's on my mind because we have people visiting people that are planting churches on the other side of the world, but It also gives us cause to thank God for our experience in this one little slice of the church here at Sunnybrook Christian Church and how good He is here and how many amazing things He does here. And we see in the book of Acts, Paul being a great example, lives are changed. And we see here in Stillwater, Oklahoma, lives are changed by the same gospel. And it really just gives us cause to reflect and with gratitude and humility. And perhaps with the question being, what role am I to play in this 2,000-year story? It's gone all over the planet in just about every language. And, and I have a part to play. And yeah, I think if you have the Spirit of God in you, you do have a part to play. So Paul, he's running into some trouble here in Jerusalem. Uh, trumped up charges leading to a riot. Sound familiar? He's just following after the footsteps of his Lord, and it's fascinating that in the process, he just has a reason to stop and say, hey, can I say something? I'd like to tell you a story. And then he does what most of us, if we were to put like our modern Christian language on it, he gives a testimony, he gives a testimony. Have you ever felt the overwhelming burden to have a really good testimony? I mean, Saul basically went from sanctioning the arrest and murder of Christians for their love of Jesus to the apostle Paul. It's a pretty sweet testimony. Sometimes I wonder if we, if we feel this burden to have a really good one, one that just sings, it's marketable, and it really will attract people to Jesus. I don't even know if that is necessarily a bad thing. But I think that one thing we can glean from this text is that it is okay to talk about yourself. And it's okay to tell the truth about yourself. That's what Paul did. So you're saying in this cosmic plan that Christ has to redeem the world to him through the church, through all these languages, all these countries, all these thousands of years, like I should be talking about myself? Sounds counterintuitive. But nevertheless, it's what Paul models It's okay to tell the truth about yourself. He said in Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted this way, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus in Syria to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. A deeply ironic way to conclude that line as... Paul, following after this way, is now in bonds in Jerusalem to be punished. He has a remarkable story. We first hear about it in Acts 9. That's the story of Paul's conversion. And then in Acts 22, he tells it right here. And then we get it a third time as he testifies to King Agrippa in Acts 26. His story is incredible. You see, what Paul was doing is that he was, he was a really, really good Jew. We can see what he's doing here in, in Jerusalem. These are not distinctively Christian things he's doing. These are Jewish things he's doing. He's very good at it, and yet he's accused of being not good at it. He's accused of not having um, the zeal that he ought to. He's accused of not being committed to his people. He's of not being an Orthodox Jew. And rather than be frustrated about that, Paul sees it as an example or a, a, an opportunity to tell a story. So what about you? Do you have a good story to tell? Maybe you have a story of misguided zeal. Maybe you have a story of at one point thinking that You were just a good enough person that God would look kindly on you. Maybe you have a story as someone who could not fathom that God would have any problem with your sins. Or on the other hand, maybe you have a story that sounds like one who just could not see how God could ever forgive their sins. Everyone has a story. What's yours? It's a good thing to think through. Like if, you, if someone were to write your biography and then say chapter three is titled When She Encountered the Risen Lord, what would that chapter say about you? Everyone has a story. I do. I have a story. My story bothers me quite a bit. Um, with each passing year, uh, my story feels darker and darker than it did before. I don't usually tell my story in any detail to youth groups. I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, I know none of us come to the cross of Christ clean, but when I look at who I was and then what God has done through me and for me in the 15, 16 years since, the, the delta, the difference to me feels so Large. At times, I still struggle with some degree of shame regarding who I was 15 years ago. At times, I struggle with who I was six months ago. That's probably because I'm forgetting the truth about who it is that does the forgiving. This Jesus, who in John 1 is called full of grace and truth, I sometimes forget that about him when I think about my story. I feel at times, and I don't mean to sound too dramatic, I don't mean to sound all woe is me, but I feel at times like I can really resonate with the Apostle Paul and say with him, as he does in 1 Timothy, that it's a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Sometimes I feel like foremost of all. In part, I have a hard time with my story because I worry about how distracting it might be to some. That's why I don't say it in any detail to youth groups because I fear that what they're going to hear is that, oh, I can do that and then kind of just get it all together later. I fear that some of you would hear me tell my story and think, oh, there's Ryan, just a cry for attention. He's got a better testimony than anybody. I fear that some of you would hear my testimony and never look at me the same again. I often wonder what people in my hometown would think of me if they saw me today. They have a lot of information about me. They knew a very different Ryan. I don't think that many of them would understand when I told them what I do for a living now. Either way, I think it's important to tell our story because Paul never hid from his past. He really didn't. And if he didn't, then maybe we shouldn't. But I think it's also important to look at Paul and remember that his past was just a way for him to get to the part of the story that's about Jesus. And I think that's an important qualifier for us to remember as we tell our stories. It's more important to talk about Jesus. It's okay to talk about yourself, more important to talk about Jesus about Jesus. He says this in 22, verse 14. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Gets through all the business of his past to get to this point. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, that's Jesus, and to hear a voice from his mouth. You will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul tells his story to get to this point, that our task is to know his will and respond by calling on his name. If you go through any of our discipleship materials or any of our classes where a lot of this material has bled into you, you you know at Sunnybrook we call that recognizing and responding. Recognizing what God has done or recognizing what God might be calling you to do, recognizing what God might be rebuking you about, recognizing what God might be teaching you and responding appropriately. Often in repentance. To know his will and to call on his name. God's mercy calls for us to act we must recognize what he's doing. We must recognize what he's doing in us. And we must respond to what he says through his word, through his church, or in his people. When's the last time that you took stock of what God might be saying to you? He might be saying that he loves you despite your faults. When's the last time you heard that? He might be saying that. He offers unconditional healing of those faults if paired with repentance. You might need to hear that today. He might be saying that he offers, because he loves you, a place where you can find comfort and hope in a community full of fellow Christ worshipers. might be saying that. Maybe you need to hear that. Maybe that's what you need to discern from the will of God today. But when the last time you responded to that kindness in repentance, by worshiping. We've already done that a little bit. We'll do more here in a little while. Or by humbly approaching a wounded brother or sister and asking how you can minister to them. That can be a wonderful act of repentance in line with the gospel. Let's stoop down and serve. We'll talk about that more in a second. Maybe if you recognize this great news that God has to offer, your response is to go and tell someone else about it. To declare this kindness to the world that desperately, desperately needs it, ongoing, even daily, repentance is part and parcel of what it means to be the bride of Christ. And as such, we will never, 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 never grow past the need to hear the gospel constantly the gospel has something to do with quote getting saved but it has everything to do with living as a saved person and as such we need to have that gospel always in front of our eyes here's how paul put it in ephesians 2 he said by grace you've been saved raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He didn't write that to future Christians, wrote that to established Christians, to a church. He said, remember the grace the gospel offers. This kindness is remarkable, kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice a very important clause there. I know you didn't get up this morning to come sing songs and have a grammar lesson, but we got to deal with this clause, in Christ Jesus, and it's so important because it puts my story in context, and it makes my story not the point. It's a little bit of why focus on the cause when the effect is what we ought to be talking about, or the cause is what we ought to be talking about. It would be foolish of me to go outside this morning. And to, to have wet hair and just wonder, I don't know what's going on, and refuse to acknowledge the existence of the rain that's coming down. One thing causes the other. It's the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus that gives us this story worth telling. It's the difference between my story and the point of it all is God's kindness coming to us in Christ Jesus. So it's okay to tell our story. It's, it's much more important to tell the story of Jesus. And as we tell both, it's very important to emphasize the transformation that's taken place. It's, we cannot forget to emphasize the difference between then and now. That's what Paul does. He says, hey, thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is 1 Timothy 1, who strengthened me. Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy, there's the Jesus, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. You see, for Paul, formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church, the point of his story is not his transformation, it's the one who does the transforming that's what he wants to get to. That's why he tells his story is to get to that point. Tells his story to get to Jesus. I think that we would, we'll spend our time well this morning to recount just the, the pure basics of the gospel. The gospel is one of those church words where we all use it and uh, all of us mean pretty much the same thing by it. I think we ought to look at it together in its entirety. I had a really fun request this summer. I was officiating a wedding. Uh, many of you might know um, Aaron Madden and Holly, formerly Hammerschmidt, now Madden. I was sitting down with them to ask them, okay, so how do you, uh, let's walk through the service, let's, let's, let's talk about, I'll, I'll write this sermon for it, and, and this, that, and the other. They said, okay, here's what we want. We don't want a wedding message. We want you to just preach the gospel and then at the end use like your ordination voodoo to just declare us married. That's all we want. We don't want a sermon about marriage, we want the gospel and then just say we're married and we'll be done with it. It was a really fun message to write. Um, And so what I did, I think that it helped me to write it down actually. It helped me to try to be precise in what I mean when I say the gospel, and it helped me try to pull in the entire testimony of the Lord, not just these little snippets that are easy and and fit on coffee cups. So as such, if you'll indulge me, I would like to take just a few minutes to read an excerpt from this wedding. So we can establish kind of a baseline gospel and then work from there, okay? Okay. So you have to imagine, we're, we're outside, Aaron's right here, looks real handsome in his navy blue suit, and uh, he's super happy, obviously, and then uh, Holly's right here, probably crying already, in her white dress, and everybody looks great, and they stand here this whole time, holding hands, and they just said, preach the gospel, really through us, I think they were targeting some people in the audience, but um, they, they want, just preach the gospel at us. I said, okay. So this is part of what I said to them. Adam and Eve were created to govern all of creation on God's behalf and in accordance with his will and character. And scripture tells us how he delighted in the deepest communion with those two who bore his very image, and yet those image bearers chose to rebel against the authority of God. Rather than listening to the words of the Lord, they listened instead to the words of the adversary. They traded the Lord of all creation for the prince of the earth. They wanted to rule their lives from the top down, yet their freely chosen attempt to seize authority from God led to their own enslavement to sin and separation from the very one who gives life abundantly. For a single dark moment, the image bearers chose to play the part of God. He then banished them from Eden and so began God's plan to one day again co-govern all of creation with his precious people. And all of Adam and Eve's children and grandchildren were just like them. They assumed complete authority over their lives in a near constant rebellion against God, and the world continued to grow dark. But God chose another way to reestablish his rule on earth. He chose a man named Abram. God made a covenant with him, a promise of his own faithful love for his people, and then changed his name to Abraham. You will make, remember, I'm talking to Aaron and Holly here. You will make solemn vows to one another in a few moments, short promises that carry the weight of a lifetime. Therefore, it is appropriate to speak of a faithful love, modeled first by God and likewise expected of you both, a concept possible only if you commit to the uttermost. But back to the gospel. Then God chose Israel. This particular family of Hebrews would show a broken, rebellious world, what it looked like to live under the care and protection of the living God. But they weren't very good at it. Even still, God loved his people. His providential care sustained them while they were slaves in Egypt. And his loving power freed them from bondage after he miraculously defeated ten of the most powerful Egyptian gods. We typically call these acts of spiritual warfare the ten plagues of the Exodus. Exodus. God was kind to give his people the law at Mount Sinai. In effect, he said, if you want to live in relationship with me again, this is what it looks like. Remain faithful to me by keeping my statutes, and you will live long in the promised land, he said. My servant Moses has given you these laws, and those who live by them will demonstrate my very character to a lost and broken world. But the people of God failed once again in the most predictable fashion. They refused to submit to the all-loving creator of the universe. Later they would tell the prophet Samuel, give us a king so he can be just like the other nations. Though Israel had rejected him as their truly good and wise king, the Lord graciously gave them Saul, David, and Solomon as the first kings over the nation of Israel. But even the great David, known as the king after God's own heart, couldn't co-govern the world with the Lord. He, just like his ancestor Adam, wanted to rule from the top down. Over time, the nation suffered because of her rebellion. Civil war, invading armies, and the judgment of God resulted in their exile to the nation of Babylon. Even after the Lord kindly relented and allowed his people to return to the promised land, life was merely a shell of what it once was. You see, God created human beings to rule the world with him and under his perfect direction. But they, we, have all chosen instead to be the absolutely sovereign king and queens of our own little kingdoms, this wasn't how God designed life to be, and it wasn't how he would leave it. 2,000 years ago, God himself became a human being. He came to show what it truly meant to live in what the New Testament would begin calling the kingdom of God. He came to save all who would submit to God the Father and bring them back into that kingdom. He came to model a way of ruling from the bottom up. He came as a king who served, saying things like the last will be first and the first will be last. and. Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And give his life he did. You see, the perfect representative of God, the perfect image bearer, the one Paul would say is the very image of the invisible God, he was rejected by the very ones he came to serve and to save. They convicted him of false charges and manipulated Rome into killing him in the most gruesome and shameful way. The very one who created those rebels was awarded a common criminal's death because of their deeply entrenched attempts to rule their own lives from the top down. But in a surprising twist of providential goodness, our great God used that sick act of rebellion as a cure for that which destroyed those he loves. By his death, the Son of God defeated death and evil and all rebellion itself. He defeated these things to such a degree that death could not hold him. And three days later, he rose from the dead to never again die. This Jesus was, he is, absolutely something incredible and unexpected. He is variously described as the second Adam in Romans 5, the true seed of Abraham in Galatians 4, the great high priest in Hebrews 5, the greater Moses in Hebrews 9, and the truly Davidic king all over Matthew's gospel. true king won for his people a new life in a new kingdom to be experienced as new creations. And in this new kingdom, you and I and all of us who submit our lives to the authority and leading and loving goodness of the only God in this great universe, we may now experience life to the fullest. And we do so in hopeful anticipation of eternal bliss once more in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, I'm still talking to Aaron and Holly. What does all this mean for this new marriage of yours? Well, first of all, Aaron and Holly, because of your faithful commitments to this God of ours, through your faith in Jesus the Messiah, you are new creations. And as such, God has called you to live out new lives in him. As Paul famously says in Romans 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And as Aaron and Holly individually pursue the Lord, that should naturally shape your marriage. Paul, speaking to those who have chosen to follow the risen Lord and who have the Spirit of God in them, reminds husbands and wives what it means to serve one another in order to be great in the eyes of the Lord. Ephesians 5, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that but holy and blameless. He who loves his wife." loves himself for no one ever hates his own flesh but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh this mystery is profound but I'm talking about Christ and the church see the gospel doesn't allow us to rule from the top down it insists that we constantly reflect the image of God by sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of others. If there's a better recipe for a gospel infused marriage, I'd be surprised. But the gospel's even thicker than that. Remember how everything began in a garden? And remember how humanity tried to usurp the authority of God and lost everything as a result? Well, Jesus has promised that he's putting it all back together. Aaron and Holly, as your marriage stands as a picture of Christ's love for his church, we get to observe a beautiful, even if only temporary, relationship meant to point us toward an infinitely greater truth. God will again live among his people in paradise, reigning and ruling together in accordance with his perfect character. Eden is coming back. John tells us in Revelation 21 what will happen when everything comes to its conclusion. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. for The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, much like the first Eden. The sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will his, be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the precious things have, the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. There's John 1. Then he said to me, it is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And that first tree, that played such a starring role in Adam and Eve's original sin. It's no longer there. But God has promised a new tree. In Revelation 22, he says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever as they were always designed to. So that's the gospel. If you and I choose to reign as little kings and queens of our own little kingdoms, well, history proves that such ideas never pan out. But as we bend our knees before Jesus Christ in worship, his grace and mercy have provided what we could not do on our own. We may now live in vibrant, life-giving communion with the living God, and we will reign with him forever. Aaron and Holly The gospel means we are free from our own limitations. The gospel means we are free to serve the risen Lord with everything we have. The gospel means we are free to give up our feeble attempts to be first, and we can trust God as we humble ourselves before others. The gospel means we are free from always having to insist on our own way, and we can trust God as we serve others. The gospel means that you too are free to love and serve one another without fear of shame or abandonment or comparison with others. In Christ, you have all that you need. And in one another, you both have a beautiful opportunity to demonstrate the love and faithfulness that exists between Jesus and his church. My brother and sister in the Lord, because of the gospel, you are able to actually live out what Paul says in Colossians 3 Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. That's the gospel. And I think it's really important for us to know that story well. And I know it's long, but our text was long, so I thought it fit. Um, But that story shapes everything. It shapes everything that we do around here, everything we believe around here, everything that we are. Any story I would ever tell you about myself functions in relation to that story. It's the foundation. And we need to tell others how that gospel has affected us. If you wonder how to tell your story, or if you wonder if you even have one worth telling, let's start here. Transformation is the work that God is doing in his church on a near daily basis. And that's what we tell people. He's doing it in you. He's doing it in me. It's the thing I pray for you when I pray for you, that God would transform you into greater and greater degrees of likeness. It's the thing I pray for my kids all the time, those closest to me, most precious to me. Okay, Ryan, this seems a little idealistic. My version of kind of like the day-to-day transformation just isn't really as cool, doesn't sell as well as Paul's, right? You go from persecutor to apostle, that's a pretty sweet story. I don't know what I can actually tell people. Well, God in his grace and in his kindness and in his sovereignty and in the fact that he knows all things, he transforms us in some surprising ways. So last night, I sat down and wrote just some of the ways that he's been transforming me over the years. And I hope that this will serve as something of an example of how you can talk about that great story as it relates to your own. God has transformed me through the hands and feet of those in my life groups. I see several here. I see several back there. I've been in, I think, four since my time at Sunnybrook. And everyone in each of those groups has ministered to me in some way, and God has transformed me as a result. God has transformed me through the generosity of so many of you who have selflessly brought a meal to our house in the past few weeks after our new baby arrived. God has transformed me by giving me opportunities to talk about Jesus with the children across the street at Stillwater Christian School. He's transformed me by giving me a chance to repent in light of a trusted friend's godly rebuke only two days ago. God's transformed me by placing me in situations where I do need to tell my story, even if I'd rather not. He's transformed me by placing me in situations where I have no other choice but to trust Him because I know I have nothing to offer. He's transformed me with countless little conversations with so many of you in these hallways. He's transformed me by allowing me to sit and hear your stories. And believe me, your stories have expanded my understanding of God considerably. God has transformed me by introducing fresh insights into my prayer life over the last few months. I've never prayed to God from the Psalms as much as I have lately, and my soul is different as a result. God has transformed me by graciously giving us a beautiful, healthy third child, and as a result, making life in our home such that I'm spending more time with the older two than ever before. God has transformed me by freeing me of the worldly desires of my youth and saving me from a certain path toward destruction. God has transformed me by giving me an incredibly godly wife who speaks truth into my life constantly. God has transformed me by showing me the perspective of a father's love for his children, even if mine pales in comparison to his. God has transformed me by showing himself faithful to his word in his scriptures. God has transformed me by allowing me to be a member at Sunnybrook Christian Church. God has transformed me through the counsel and friendship of wise, godly men. God has transformed me by giving me an insatiable desire to learn more about him. And he's transformed me through countless hours reading and writing about him. And God has transformed me by giving me a story that says far more about him than it does about me. You remember what Jesus told the man to go and do after he healed him of his demons? Mark 5 says, go home. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So in the end, I pray that God will give me a willing heart and a courageous mouth such that I could speak of his mercy and the dark, dark world will marvel. I pray that for you too. When it's all said and done, God will have finally transformed me completely into the likeness of Christ. I'll spend the rest of eternity delighting in the faithfulness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will spend the rest of eternity on my knees in worship at the majesty of the forever king from the line of David. I will spend eternity basking in the radiance of the Lamb. The very one who poured out his own blood, such that he could transform me from an object of his wrath to a recipient, very unworthy recipient of his mercy. So, how should we give our testimony? We should give our testimony with a deep and abiding sense that our story ought to result in the praise of Jesus. In fact, Rather than shy away from my story, I hope some of you will have a reason to come and ask me to tell you. And then I'm gonna ask you about yours. the cool thing is, I think we'll end up not really talking about ourselves, but just talking about Jesus, which is a wonderful way to spend our time. Let's pray. Father, we are... Exceedingly grateful for your mercy, for the fact that we have all experienced your gospel. Remind us that somebody else followed you in obedience and told that gospel to us. May we feel deep burden to do the same. May we feel the comfort. In the power of your spirit, we don't have to do everything. We just have to be obedient. And all the real transformative work comes from you. Give us eyes to see those who need to hear our story. Give us eyes to see opportunities to tell your story. May we never get tired of hearing it ourselves. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.